1: Welcome into the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Preem. Eric Skopel is with me as always. And on today's show, we're going to be breaking down the big news over the weekend, which involves Oregon's Javon Holland, uh, a lot of other Pac 12 players across the conference forming uh, a unity group who are making some demands about. Uh, some health concerns, uh, protecting all sports, and racial uh, injustice in college sports and society, and some economic freedom and equality. A uh, lot to unpack there. We're going to break all that down and, and potentially what that means for Javon Holland uh, and other players in the Oregon football season. Uh, and also, the 2020 football schedule was updated and re-released on Friday. Um, Eric and Kevin Wade uh, of, of DuckTerritory.com had a breaking news podcast, Merchant News podcast when that happened. But now that it's been a couple days, we're going to kind of dive into that a little bit more and digest it a little bit more now that we've had an opportunity to really scope over things. Um, but first, we want to remind you guys, if you are not a, a Duck Territory sub- subscriber, you can do so and get some huge savings uh, right now for the entire month of August, it's the 10th year anniversary of 24 seven sports and we are offering a 50% off annual VIP membership. So instead of paying uh, $9.95 per month, you could get it for a one time billing of $53 and 70 cents. Uh, that's a huge savings uh, across the board, 50% off an annual membership e- inside scoop on the Oregon ducks, expert analysis and opinion, read all the content across the 24 seven sports network, not just our site and not the, just the Oregon network, but you get everybody. You get to re- read what USC is reporting. Our, our Ohio state sites reporting our Washington state is reporting. You get the full story on 24 seven sports. So, all right, Eric, um, I mentioned it at the top, but Javon Holland was one of more than a handful of Pac-12 players who signed their names uh, to some demands, uh, and they're using the hashtag, we are united. They're identifying themselves as being among those who have threatened to opt out of fall camp and gain participation uh, if their demands are not met by the Pac-12 and their schools. Um, Javon Holland is the most recognizable name among the group who signed their names to this group. Um, Other players from Stanford, Cal, Oregon State, UCLA, Arizona, Washington, Washington State, and Arizona State have pledged. Um, But Javon Holland is the most recognizable name to come out and put his name directly attached to to this movement, and there's a lot to unpack for what they're demanding.
0: Yeah, and so let's run through, and you can find this on the Players' Tribune. They, they, they posted their demands on this uh, on an article there. You can go find that. I'm sure Google will help you there. But let's run through what's kind of been asked for, and then we'll analyze kind of maybe the likelihood of, of what this demands could, I guess, what the response could be from, a, from the conference. Um, first, they, they have concerns over health and safety protections. A lot of this is related to COVID-19. Um, allowing the option not to play this season because of the pandemic um, and prohibiting COVID-19 agreements that waive liability. Um, Mandatory safety standards, uh, player-approved health and safety standards enforced by a third party selected by players to address COVID-19 as well as serious injury, abuse, and death. I think this one is, let's be honest here, Like this is stuff that should get dealt with, I would imagine, but move on to the next part here. Um, Protect all sports, preserve all existing sports by limiting excessive expenditures starts out here. Number one, by throwing out uh, Larry Scott, the PAC 12 commissioner, he and other administrators and coaches to voluntarily and drastically reduce excessive pay um, to end performance slash academic bonuses to end lavish facility expenditures and some use of endowment funds to preserve all sports. Um, he uses an example of Stanford University should reinstate all sports discontinued by tapping into their $27.7 billion endowment. Uh, we should note that earlier uh, there were a couple of sports that they were forced to to cut. Uh, that's a response to that. And the third one here, end racial injustice in college sports and society. Um, I'll just read the bullet points here from a permanent civic engagement ta- form, sorry, form a permanent civic engagement task form, force made up of our leaders, experts of our choice, and university and conference administrators to address outstanding issues such as racial injustice in college sports and society. Two, in partnership with the Pac-12, 2% of conference revenue would be directed by players to support financial aid for low-income Black students, community initiatives, and development programs for college athletes on each campus. And third, form annual Pac-12 Black College Athlete Summit with guaranteed representation of at least three athletes of our choice from every school. And then the fourth one here is the economic freedom and equity portion. Um, First, and this one makes a ton of sense, guaranteed medical expense coverage, medical insurance selected by players. Um, They're talking about this for at least six years following college eligibility ending. Um, The next one here is something that's already sort of being addressed, but that's the name, image, and likeness representation. And then the third part here is I think where we're going to, I guess, spend a little time discussing because it's kind of interesting, but the fair market pay and rights and freedoms. And this is where they ask for, to distribute 50% of each sport's total conference revenue evenly among athletes in their respective sports, um, six, six-year athletic scholarships to foster undergraduate and graduate degree completion, elimination of all policies and practices restricting or deterring, Our freedom of speech, our ability to fully participate in charitable work, and our freedom to participate in campus activities outside of mandatory athletic participation. Ability of players of all sports to transfer one time without punishment and additionally in cases of abuse or serious negligence. Ability to complete eligibility after participating in a pro-draft if player goes undrafted and foregoes professional participation within seven days of the draft and then finally due process rights. Um, a lot to unpack there, Matt. Um, let's start at the top here just with the health health, and, and safety precautions um, right. from a COVID perspective. I, I imagine this is something that is not going to – I would hope not take a whole lot of uh, arm wrestling from the league to, to kind of come to an agreement here because they do need to have – every. this is a bizarre circumstance. And they, in my opinion, at least I'm sure you agree, uh, they need to have protections in place that, that are consistent and, and and I guess just safety has to be at the forefront of this, right?
1: Yeah, and, and the first bullet point that they have of, of allowing the option not to play because of the pandemic and players having the safety net of not having to worry about losing their athletic ability, eligibility and a spot on their team, basically meaning they want their scholarships guaranteed um, if, and status with the team and if, you, if they sit out for COVID reasons. And that's basically already been an agreed upon. By the Pac-12, they announced that prior to um, this, this, these demands from Pac-12 Football Unity uh, being released, um, and so that right there is is done. Um, it's pretty clear that that you know, the schools are committing to to honoring those deals. Prohibit um, agreements to waive the liability. Um, that should be one. I mean, I I, I kind of sign with the player on this side, because uh, it's, it's evident and it's obvious that colleges, not just in the PAC 12, but everywhere. um, They need these athletes to compete, to play these sports, to generate the revenue, to pay for the salaries, to pay for the bills and everything that comes with running college athletics. Um, So they're going to, you know, and, and in part provide money to the school. So I, I don't think that's going to be an issue either. Um, there probably will be some wiggle room in terms of, you know, how how far out, you know, is the school responsible for anything that comes up? Is it one year after um, a cure is found or a season is played? Is it two or three? What have you? I I don't think uh, a school will, will sign off forever. But um, – and then the third-party one, that's also one that feels like that that can be – Um, easily assessed of of maybe it's not every single day that there's a third party, you know, monitoring it, but maybe it's a a checkpoint where um, they come in and get audited once a week or twice a week or, you know, twice a month. Some, some number that's agreed upon where uh, the the Pacto players can, can request a third party to come in and just double check health is, is going okay. And, And I would think like here locally in the state of Oregon, the Oregon health authority, um, yeah. I would think they would want to to walk into these type of you know situations where there's uh, a lot of people gathering for for sports to to make sure that, that there's no outbreaks popping up, especially if if students start returning to campus
0: Oh yeah, no, no doubt about that um, what did you what did you think about the, the second section Matt? Um, protecting all the sports, talking about eliminating excessive expenditures um, Larry Scott named directly, I read today, I think salary is at $5.3 million annually, which does feel a little excessive. Um, I think when, when you start bringing the, the financial part into this is where it's going gonna, it's gonna to be pretty telling to see how much the Pac-12 wants to work with these players because it's going to infringe upon a lot of administrators, coaches, own paycheck, um, their, their own pocketbook. I think to me, this is where I start kind of being like, I'm just curious to see if they'll take that very seriously. Um, and obviously, um, if they don't, what the repercussions of that will be, which clearly is a a boycott.
1: I mean, I, 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 there's, we live in a a country that has a free market and if you can find someone that's going to pay you X amount of dollars, it's in your right to, to execute that. Um, That being said, I do think salaries across college athletics have kind of inflated too high, and eventually they were going to come down because uh, sports just couldn't, you know, college athletics just couldn't continue to um, operate at this growth scale. You know, we're seeing assistant coaches now get paid over a million dollars. It used to be a deal where um, assistant coaches were continually under that, and every once in a while you'd get one, it was a huge storyline. And, and now it, it's not so much, um, it, it's still a, an eye catcher, but it's not what it used to be. And, you know, at our current rate, you know, there of, of progress, you know, we're going to start seeing, you know, coordinators get paid a million dollars and then assistant coaches, you know, just simple you know, position coaches get paid a million dollars while athletes don't. Um, and and that's where it starts really feeling like this isn't, it, it's not right. If the, if, if, all these other people are making such gobs of money and the the players are performing uh, on the field, aren't getting a dime from, yes, that you're, you're going to argue, they're going to get scholarships and please don't argue they get gear because that's worthless. Um, You know, (laughs) and and it's basically their uniforms to to show up for work. Um, Please don't come here and and, and argue that they get gear. Uh, That's not going to pay bills. That's not going to, you know, at most schools, that's not going to generate a ton of money. At Oregon, yes. With the player edition shoes and, and all of that, yes. You know, those athletes could sell those and, and make some serious coin. But it, in the grand scheme of things, it's not going to be a year's salary um, per individually. Now, getting these administrators to cut down on prices, that's going to be difficult. But also, you know, college athletics has been built up upon a lot of these, you know, High-level recruits go to schools that have invested hundreds of millions of dollars into their facilities, and now they're asking. And and and, Eric, I think you and I would agree that you know Oregon's facilities is a huge uh, positive and a huge piece of Oregon's recruiting. Um, obviously, it's the people inside the buildings, but their facilities still matter. St- their facilities still have that shock and awe. Impact on recruiting and have a direct correlation of success on the recruiting trail.
0: Hundred percent and absolutely. And you, you just look at what Oregon is building around its campus. It's not all for a recruiting perspective, but you, they build an incredible track and field because they want to attract the big track meets, which is what they've had success doing. They build the brand new uh, basketball arena about a decade ago because they want to have a state of the art basketball facility to elevate the basketball programs. And let's be honest, it's worked. Right, both men's and women's programs are much more successful now than they were when they were over at Mac Court. And then, of course, from a recruiting perspective, like what Matt just ran through, um, the hatfield Allen complex, everything they've got going over um, in that Ottson complex, basically, is state-of-the-art, top-level stuff. And if you walk through some of those buildings, you know, it, you know what it is. So um, I think, you know, do, do football players need this to do their day-to-day stuff? Probably not. And I think, you know, it, I, I'm not opposed to ending this sort of – Every five years, there's a new hot thing every school is trying to do and emulate from a building perspective or a jersey perspective, and it's a ton of money being tossed around here. And I'm not saying you don't want to innovate, but I think at the same time, you can certainly be a lot more conservative with your with your financial stuff. I think the other part here that really stood out was the ending of the performance and academic bonuses because for a long time here, coaches, head coaches, assistant coaches have have made money because their players perform well on the field and off the field, and um, it seems ludicrous to me that that money would be going to the coaches rather than to the actual athletes who who are accomplishing the things on the field. So um, I was happy to see that portion also outlined uh, in the list of demands. The third. Now, wait, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say the third part here. Unless did you have more to say on that on that section? Well, I do think I do think there's some sense in
1: just whether we want to look at this from. Uh, a, a, a social justice issue or a race issue, what have you of, I mean, regardless of all of that, I do think the PAC 12 needs to look into Larry Scott's salary of $5.4 million and yes. ask, is this really worth what we're, what we're paying? Um, I mean, look how far the, the league has fallen behind other conferences. Um, the, the, the reach the conference has compared to other conferences with Larry Scott overseeing it. Um, I mean, that's just, from a a pure business standpoint, I don't think Larry Scott is giving Oregon or in the PAC 12, the return on investment that the league is doing in Larry Scott. And so that would be one, I think regardless, it it would it would make sense to look into. I do find it strange that athletes, and I felt this way for a while that athletes don't get any compensation, but if, if they get a, you know, good grades uh, or, or on field success, but if, a coach's players get good grades and academic and on-field success, they get a bonus. So um, uh, there's certainly a lot of things that need to come out that need to be updated to modern times. And that, I think that's the biggest thing is that, you know, college athletics is, is so ingrained in a, a, a timeline and a time, you know, a, 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 a part of society and, and timepiece that is so outdated and, and so many things need to be updated, that this is just, you know, only scratching the surface of a lot of policies the NCAA has that need to be updated for modern times.
0: It's probably a, a good transition to the the third point here, which deals, of course, with racial justice in college sports and society. I would think from an optics perspective and really just from a fairness perspective, I would hope the conference would work with, with them on this. And you've seen it now from a professional level of the NBA and the WNBA even Major League Baseball, it sounds like the NFL, taking steps to to kind of work with athletes to promote racial justice in this country. I think asking for 2% of the conference revenue directed towards um, certain funding for low-income athletes and community initiatives and all of that, I think that's going to be, again, telling to see what the conference is really willing to do here. Um, Obviously, like I said, from an optics perspective, it's really easy to agree to this and say, yeah, we're we're, we're, we're pro Black Lives Matter. We, wanna, we want the student athletes to feel like they're seen and, and that they're getting, you know, and, and that change is being enacted. Um, but it's going to again be, be tested by their budget. And a guy like Larry Scott, who we, d- we already talked about how much he makes annually, I'm just curious to see if he's even really how interested he is into even entertaining taking two percent of the conference's revenue, which I know doesn't sound like a ton, but during a year where there's a pandemic going on and all these other things. And and I I just wonder what that response is going to be. And that would be the one I look at and think that's where they might have some foot dragging because the other ones I think are pretty easy from my perspective, at least in terms of your forming a civic uh, engagement task force, you can do that forming um, the Pat 12 black college athlete summit. Um, those are two things that I think are are pretty easy to put together. Um, Obviously you wouldn't rush those processes, but I I think you can get on board with, I'm more curious to see if they get on board with the the financial impacts.
1: The the 2% is similar to what the university of Texas is football players are asking for. And I think, I think this is a good idea. Um, I I think. um, There's certainly some areas that you can, you can explore down this road of, of directing some of the revenue that's generated by football and other sports, and putting that into um, serving minorities on the campuses of the twelve Pac-12 schools, and then the communities around those campuses, um, I, th- I think I think and I think that's a really good idea, um, and a really good way to you know continue to to make progress and to continue to help. Uh, the minorities within your footprint and within your communities uh, to, you know, better themselves.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I think that's, I think that one
1: should be pretty easy to to agree upon.
0: Okay. I would hope so. You know, I, I, and I'm optimistic (laughs) on a lot of this stuff until we get to the fourth part here. Um, And really not in really just the third section of the fourth part, because the guaranteed medical expense coverage um, for six years after they're they're deserving of that. They have put their bodies on the line for, for three to five years, and sometime- I mean, think of
1: think of uh, think of Farrah Brown. What if he was not fortunate enough to recover and make it into the NFL? Or like a better Ifo. example, maybe Efo, where yeah. you know Efo I- suffered a, a career, basically a career-ending injury uh-huh. in, in practice leading up to the Rose Bowl, killed his draft stock, and you know should have the medical rights. Uh, you know, the school should help pay, you know, and take care of him, you know, for what they're saying, six years after his completion of of, of competing.
0: Which makes sense. That means you basically have a 10-year coverage window. You start as a freshman, say, in 2020. You're going to be covered through 2030. Um, and, I, and to me, I'm totally on board with that. I think the conference probably will have a hard time arguing against it. And the, the next one here, the um, the NIL rights and representation, that's already stuff that's being discussed obviously um, within states. And I I assume the conference is already discussing how they're going to play. I don't, that's nothing new really um, besides it being included on their list of demands and and maybe forcing a hand in terms of when that takes place. Um, The third part is where I think, and this is probably the part of the whole entire list of demands where things I think are are most difficult, 50% of each sports total, and not to be too skeptical here, but I, I just, that's a lot. 50%, 50%, that's half of the total revenue. Um, I'm guessing this is a negotiation tactic here where you're starting with a number that certainly seems high, hoping to, hoping to get somewhere close to that, but realizing 50% is, is probably un, unreasonable. At least I would be stunned if the Pac-12 somehow accepts a 50% revenue share between uh, the schools and the athletes. Yeah,
1: this is – look, you start high, this is a negotiating tactic. Yeah, you, exactly. you start really high and the other you know, side will start really low and it's a process of meeting in the middle somewhere. Um, they're not going to get 50% of the revenue. Um, and I'm with you. I, I, I am of belief that athletes should be paid um, or – I let me rephrase that. I am of the belief that athletes should be able to make profit while in college that could come a majority of it could come from name image and likeness which is going to be in effect next year so unfortunately for these athletes who are playing their final seasons of football um they won't be able to take part in it but other athletes that are underclassmen or won't be going pro early you know they'll be able to profit off their name image and likeness if they're able to manufacture you know the interest for that uh starting next season Um, I do think there is something to be said going back to salaries. Uh, I saw a tweet from, um, I believe, a Congressman back East who is working with um, college athletics and amateurs and and getting them rights and getting them paid and fair representation and and all of that. Um, He brought up a good point, I think, of where some salaries are ballooned too high. And Michigan pays Jim Harbaugh like seven and a half million dollars a year, and they easily could be paying him four million dollars a year. And every player on the football team could make could get you know fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, you know, sent to him uh, for for playing and being part of the Michigan football program. I'm not saying it's that simple um, because there's also the free market value of that. Um, but but I mean, how much would an athlete's life change? Um, and for, for the better, if they simply were just given two thousand extra dollars a month, um, you know, to help, you know, with with their um, with, with with their expenses. You know, Michael James tweeted at me yesterday that he felt like it needs to be. He said college athletes should be paid, and that he felt that it also needs to be though a universal number across the board because some schools will be able to pay more than other schools and could create a disadvantage um, or an advantage in their, in their eyes. So I'm, I'm in agreement there too. I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but I do think there is some kind of wiggle room in college athletics with how much they spend on facilities, with how much they they spend on administration payments um, for their salaries, how much coaches make, that players could receive some kind of money, but fifty percent of the revenue—that just that—that that feels like that if that's their their number and they won't push off that, they'll never get, this will never get agreed upon.
0: Yeah, there's I just don't see how there's any way that fifty percent is matched. Um, frankly, I don't. Especially
1: in two or three weeks. <laughs>
0: yeah, and, and frankly, I, I don't know what the what number of the Pac-12 would even really consider. Um, negotiating with and like what what what's the target number for these athletes is it 25% 20% because I think if you get I mean I don't see any way they get um, 25% seems very steep to me um, and, and you know and I'm not saying they're not deserving of it I just think about the financial impacts of that and I just don't think they're gonna I don't think the conference is gonna budge so it's gonna I think this portion here is gonna be the part that really makes or breaks what takes place right um, and if they're able to come to some come to some sort of agreement, and I should say, I think you look at the rest, like two through six, on the on this final portion here, in terms of the equal rights and, and pay and freedom stuff. Uh, the rest of them are pretty manageable. I mean, I think the six year athletic scholarship, letting players transfer without punishment, um, the line that, player-
1: that's that's been one that doesn't make that hasn't made sense for years, for decades, because <laughs> coaches can 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 get up. And, and they can land at a school, and they can have some success in one or two years, and then another school presents an opportunity that the, that, that, that that coach views as an upgrade to his current status, whether it's whether it's monetary or, or whether it's status within the coaching staff or what have you, and get up and leave, continue to get paid more money most likely, have a better job in his eyes, and doesn't have to sit out, doesn't have to pay some kind of penalty for the most part. Whereas the college athlete, if if a guy shows up at Eastern Washington and red shirts plays in plays extremely well, his red shirt freshman year, his redshirt sophomore year was a late bloomer developmental-wise, and all of a sudden says, you know what, I could get to the NFL and I have a higher chance of getting to the NFL. If I play at a bigger school, I want to move up. I want to go to Oregon. And he then has to lose a year of eligibility because he redshirted. So he now only has one year left to prove it. That just doesn't seem right in my mind.
0: I also, I also think there is such a lack of fairness in terms of who actually gets approved for immediate eligibility as opposed to not. I mean, like, really quickly, like, just from a women's basketball perspective, I don't see why Sedona Prince had to sit out last year, but now Taylor sell a, a player gets to play this year, and you see it on the football right. field all the time where it's like, Uh, players have legitimate reasons for going back home. A family member is sick and they have to sit a year. And then you get a star quarterback who seemingly just wants to play right away and help the football team right away. And and they're given an immediate waiver. So there's, I think just doing away with that whole sitting out part in general, and 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 they're only asking for it on a one-time thing. So they're not promoting the idea of somebody would jump between programs every year for five years. They're not asking for that. Um, They're just saying for one year and then additionally in cases of abuse or serious negligence, which I think is all reasonable. And I, and I hope the conference um, takes that under consideration and and follows through with that Um, because I like unlike you, Matt, I don't see why that's already not the rule.
1: Right. I I look at these and I think there's a good starting point for some, a lot of them um, are easy decisions. I think, you know, yes or no's. And then there's going to be some, some ones that are going to take some time. And I think the question becomes, Eric, what happens in three or four weeks when fall camp opens up? And yeah. these have not been made. I think that's my biggest question about out of all of this is I'm, – and I'm pro player on yeah. this, but how tight is this group? Is this group really prepared when fall camp starts, let's just throw out, August 18th? and his teammates um, get on the field, football field and they start training, they get the, you know, they get the, 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 the food that comes with it after practice. Um, during, you know, their off days, they get their food, they get their room and board paid for, all of that. What happens when, you know, they, they, don't, they, they sit out? Do, does the school honor – all those commitments, you know, we're already seeing that kind of play out up at Washington state. Um, you know, some players are, one player is alleging he's been cut. Uh, Washington state is saying that if, if he's opting out for COVID reasons and uh, his own health, it doesn't make sense for him to be working out around, you know, a large group of people for his own safety. So, you know, that's going to be an extremely difficult line to walk that I don't know what the the correct answer is going to be. And will these players really be prepared to sit out? That's, that's my biggest question. When camp starts, how many guys who have said that they're part of this or support this movement show up?
0: I would, I would expect they will. Um, And otherwise this is completely hollow and and you have no chance of getting your demands met. Um, And I don't think the conference and these players are going to come to any sort of resolution in two weeks either. Um, I mean, this—the conference announced on Friday that August 17th is the first day for fall practice, and that's two weeks from when we're recording this. I, I have a very hard time expecting the conference to come and, and, and these players to come to some sort of conclusion that is, is considered fair and reasonable for both parties in two weeks. Um, so I think we are going to be faced with a thing where when Oregon starts fall camp and then we don't—they don't have an official date. 17th is just the first day you could, in theory, start. I will be curious to see what Oregon's practices look like. You know, will they have the expected number of bodies out there or will we be looking at a much, much smaller contingent of players? So um gonna be fascinating to see how this plays out. And I think fascinating to see over the next weeks kind of what transpires with this and, and how I guess flexible and how much the of actually wants to work with these players, or if they're gonna just say, yeah, I don't really care. Next man up kind of thing. And I hope it's not that, but I don't know. I'm I don't, I really don't know where this is going to go is I guess we're all end.
1: All right. Coming up, we're going to talk some actual on, on the field discussion. The PAC 12 did announce the revised 2020 football season. We're going to break down some of the early implicate, you know, early thoughts on this and where things will go for Oregon and the PAC 12 right after the break.
0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right, welcome back to the Odds and Audibles podcast. I'm Matt Prem.
1: Eric Scopel is with me as always, and we teased it at the for the break. The Pac-12 and CEO group. Um, They approved on the 31st of July a revised, updated, 10-game conference-only schedule. Um, The season will commence on September 26th, normally week four of the season, uh, with the flexibility, if necessary, to commence on a later date if the situation warrants that's related to COVID. Each team will play five home games, five road games, so everyone will have, from a road and home perspective, an equal schedule schedule. Games that are unable to be played on their scheduled date can be made up in their bye weeks or in a week 12, December 12th date with the Pac-12 football championship game now moved to December 18th or 19th and the Pac-12 football championship game will be held, this is a change, in a home-hosted model for 2020 with the Pac-12 and the Legion Stadium and the Raiders uh, agreeing that they will now host the first-ever championship game in Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas in 2021 for its two-year run in Las Vegas. That way, the, the Pac-12 championship game goes off in a successful manner. Safety The most reasonable safety precautions are taken and all of that. Um, Oregon's first game starts at home. Instead of on the road, uh, Its first non its first conference game was slated to be played at Colorado. That's now shifted to... Oregon, and it's the same teams, but on September 26th, the Ducks will be playing Colorado at home. I I think, Eric, from a first-game perspective, this is probably about as good of a situation as you could ask for from an Oregon perspective because you're playing a team that quite honestly wasn't going to have high expectations in 2020 before COVID hit. New head coach, new, new quarterback, new star receiver, three starters along their offensive line have to be replaced their defense was not an elite unit and now all of a sudden you get to play this team on the ro- at home instead of on the road
0: the or this schedule and especially the first three games is I think ex- extremely favorable compared to a what it was rumored to be after or I guess about a week ago before this dropped where they talked about possibly playing Utah in Utah to start a season Um, And then the schedule would have opened up with Colorado and Washington afterwards. And it's I think especially a lot more reasonable compared to what the original schedule before the conference, the non-conference games got uh, cut where you were hosting (laughs) reigning national FBS schools and Ohio state and Hawaii. Um, This is like best case scenario for Oregon in terms of this is the worst team in the conference in my mind. And you get to play them at home. This is a, we didn't think Oregon was going to get a tune-up game this year to start a season for Tyler Shuck and some of these, and again, we're suggesting Tyler Shuck as a starter that hasn't been decided, but presumably Tyler Shuck and some of these young guys who haven't had a lot of starting experience, we we thought they would be thrust right into it um, to open a season. And and now that's certainly not the case. And I think personally, I really like how this lines for Oregon in terms of you get to play the worst team in the conference at home. The next week you go to Pullman, which is a tough road environment, but who knows what that's going to be like because of COVID and who knows any of that's going to be like the weather is going to be a lot better in early October than it would have been in late November when the game was originally scheduled. Um, So Matt, I don't know about you, but I think from an early perspective, this is very favorable uh, from Oregon's perspective.
1: Yeah. And then, I mean, the the next game you play out is is a road game at Washington state. And again, this is uh, a new school, a school with a new head coach, a lot of pieces having to be replaced. The Cougars were not going to be, Projected as one of the better teams in the Pac-12 now, Mike Leach isn't there. But in his defense, he he would always say every year his team was was underappreciated and they would always overachieve. When in reality, he said in our eyes we just were as good as we were, you know, meant to be. Um, and, and so you could argue the Cougars maybe still have some some, some talent and could be a, a dangerous team. But playing them early in the season with so many new faces, especially a head coach and new defense, new offense, all of that. Um, your first road game being at Washington State in early October, it, it certainly could be a heck of a lot tougher. And I'm, I'm with you. I think, you know, three out of their first four games uh, are set up to be very pro Oregon. Um, they play Arizona State on a Friday at home, October 9th. I don't like Friday games, especially without a bye week before it, uh, one less day in the prep. Um, One less day now in terms of today's standards of COVID. If if a player has to miss, that's just one less day he has to recover to be able to get back on the football field. Um, Thoughts on Oregon State playing Oregon, the Civil War being (laughs) – it's not the Civil War. Um, Careful. Be careful there. Uh, Oregon and Oregon State in an unnamed rivalry game playing October 17th. Does that bother you? It's not the last game of the year.
0: Yeah, it does. I had I posted about it on Twitter, and then everybody got on me for saying, well, it's not a normal year and everything's going to be normal. And I said, well, you could, could have still scheduled it uh, December 5th where the Utah game is. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't like the fact that the Oregon-Oregon State rivalry game, and that's, I guess, what we're calling it until there's a, another name. I don't, I don't like it early on in the season. Um, just from a rivalry perspective, it's strange not completing a season with that being, I guess, the conclusion of the regular season. At the same time, from an Oregon, like, team perspective, it, I think it's not terrible to play a rivalry game early on in the season um, in mid-October, prior to a bye week, we should say, as well. Uh, it means Afterwards, you're given a little bit of a rest. I think the bye week, we'll talk about in a second. I think it plays out pretty nice for what comes afterwards. But I, I, I think from a historical – I'm used to this being at the end of the season kind of thing, it bugs me. From, if you're an Oregon fan and you're looking at how it actually impacts like, maybe the competitive balance – I don't really think there's much impact.
1: Um, it's certainly going to be strange going into a game in which Oregon and Oregon state play. And then right after that, there's more pac 12 games. Um, It's going to be interesting though, because in a three week span, Oregon will play Oregon state on the 17th of October. They'll get a bye week on the 24th. And then their next game back will be against the Washington Huskies at home, um, Pivotal, I think, that Oregon gets a bye week leading up to that Washington game. I think that's a really critical junction, uh, especially for the games that follow the Huskies.
0: Yeah, it's the three-game stretch that I think is the most difficult, at least looking at it on paper, because then they go at Cal, which for my money is probably the most difficult game on the schedule. Um, At least looking at it right now, I think the, the Utah game at the end will be t- could be difficult too, and and the next game here also challenging and that would be USC coming to Autzen on November 14th that's a gauntlet right there for Oregon and that's where you will kind of be able to test kind of where they're at and I think if Oregon's going to lose a conference game here um it's probably going to come in one of those three games against Washington at home at Cal or hosting USC on the 14th of November um that's a real tough stretch there. And then the schedule kind of gets weird <laughs> afterwards because you play some teams that are like when, – when Kevin were talking about this last week, it's just a very unpredictable three teams at the back end.
1: Yeah. They, so Oregon plays Washington, Cal, USC, like you said, two of those three being at-home games. Uh, and then Arizona, Stanford, Utah. I, I don't know what – I mean, I yeah. think Arizona is going to be bad. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, but that's a road game in November in Tucson, and we just historically know. On a Friday, Matt. On a Friday. <laughs> yeah, on the second Friday game of the year for Oregon. Um, just feels just like a trap game. It, it, really? it always is when, when Oregon plays down there. Uh, it's always difficult. It's always crazy. But then the last two in particular for me, Stanford and Utah. Stanford, again, is a school that I, I don't – know if anyone's realistically going to pick them to win the conference. But at the same time, historically the last 10 or so years, they've been one of the better teams in the league. And it's it's a game that always is going to, you know, have some 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 juice to it. Luckily for Oregon, it's at home. And then this is the one that's just scary to me. You have to go to Utah in December and I was against playing Utah in, in, in the first place, but if, if Oregon had to, had to choose uh, between them or UCLA, because those are the two teams that they could add right. to the schedule um, that weren't originally on it. And I'm going to say I would much rather face Utah week one on the road in Salt Lake City than I would want to play Utah in December in the mountains Potentially a night game against a team that historically always seems to get better as the year goes on.
0: That's the part that's interesting here, right? And Utah, like some of the other teams we're talking about, has lost a lot. Um, Tyler Huntley, Zach Moss, were first-team All-Conference quarterback and running backs last year. They're both gone. Bradley and I was one of the best defensive players in the conference. And I'm actually, I think Evan Weaver won the conference defensive player of the year, but and I was one of those candidates for sure. He's gone. Lose a lot in the secondary. I've talked about that. We talked about this a little bit last week. Yet you play them after, after nine games, and they, they landed a big-time South Carolina grad transfer quarterback, and I think it's Jake Bentley. Um, and they've got a lot of talent. From a recruiting perspective, it's getting better down there. And I, I do think this is a game that, like, yeah, Utah might be playing for a Pac-12 South championship right now, and Oregon might be playing for the Pac-12 North championship. And this could be a game that has some, some real implications here. And, and it might even be a game that's a preview – of the game on the 18th or 19th uh, in terms of a Pac-12 championship game. And maybe this is a game where you're playing for almost where the site of the game will be played and the winner of that game plays it at home. And if you lose, you might have to go to Salt Lake again. So um, I think that game is, is a real tough, tough one. I definitely had that near the top um, of my most difficult games on the list. Let me throw that back to you from that perspective, Matt. I, I, I did mine. You can check this on the site. If you want listeners on deck, I ranked the 10 games from easiest to, to most difficult if you're looking at this, who are you picking from in terms of the most difficult games? Do you have two or three, or is it really obvious to you which one's the most challenging?
1: I pick three. Okay. Um, toughest games on the schedule. I, and I, I think it's Cal on the road. I think that's the toughest one. Agreed. Utah on the road in December is going to be the second toughest. And then USC being a home game. Mid, Mid-November is going to be my third toughest game of the year. I, I kind of went back between Washington and USC, but look, USC is is the, the brunt end of a lot of jokes within the conference right now. Um, I mean, I even executed one when Alabama finally announced that they were not going to be playing uh, in, in Texas against USC, even though the Pac-12 said <laughs> way before they weren't playing non-conference games. Um, but when that game officially died uh, – Everyone, myself included, joke, well, Clay Helton's job status just improved because he doesn't have to play Alabama. Yeah. Um, make, make no mistake, though, they still have, on paper, the most talent in the conference. They still have a bunch of five-stars running around on both sides of the football. Um, if they play at their best, they are a national title contender. And so I went back between Washington and USC, and I just don't think Washington is national title contender if they play at their best this season. USC, if they play at their best, they are a national title contender.
0: I'm, yeah, and I, my, I should say my three were Cal, USC second, and then Utah third. Um, so we had the same schools, just a little out of order there. And I look at USC very similar to what you said, and I think – Continuities there is actually pretty good. Keaton Slovis was great last year. They bring back two of their top three wide receivers and they also have a bunch of other five stars waiting in the wings to play um, running back. They have all their running backs back. The offensive line wasn't very good last year, but they bring, I think three out of five starters back and the defense is, is similar. So um, the defense needs to be better by the way, because it was pretty awful last year. You think about the way it played. <laughs> they played against Oregon in the Coliseum, think about their bowl game with Iowa and how bad they were there. But um USC has huge upside and I think if we're just doing a USC Washington discussion for a second here Washington has a new coach that they're you know Jimmy Lakes there Chris Peterson's gone at least there's continuity because he's on the staff but they were replacing their top quarterback their top running back their top two wide receivers a lot of their offensive line their tight end um, on defense they lose quite a bit in the secondary um, I think Washington has a lot of questions to answer so I didn't even really consider them as much with that group. That top three, to me, it was that top three, and then Washington kind of was that next group afterwards, along with Arizona State um, and Washington State.
1: Does the schedule, in your eyes, change anything in terms of Oregon? I think you and I were in agreement before the revised schedule that we said Oregon is probably going to be the favorites. Yeah. Does this change your opinion whatsoever on
0: that? No, Oregon's still the favorites. In fact, I, I look at this and think. When we, when we did the predictions previously, I had them losing, I think, three games in the regular season. That was on a 12-game schedule, one coming to Ohio State and then losses to Cal and USC. I look at this now and really think there's a good chance they can win nine games here and maybe a chance they win ten. I think ten feels a little far-fetched, and I was maybe more dismissive of it on Friday just because, like, 70% of people I pulled on Twitter thought they were going to go undefeated, and I thought that was a little bit ludicrous. But there's not a game on the schedule. Oregon's probably not going to be favored. Um, I mean, realistically, I mean, the first four for sure. And then depending upon what happens after the bye week, um, I think they're going to be favored in all these games, maybe with the exception of at Cal and at Utah, depending on how those teams perform. So I think Oregon can certainly go, they can run the table here. I think more realistically, they probably drop one game. Um, but I think they're definitely the favorites in the North. And, and I don't think there's much question about it. And, and I think if anything, the schedule maybe cements that in my mind a little bit more. I
1: I don't think... I would say right now Oregon's going to go undefeated, but I'm not. I'm not on board with seventy percent, you know, possibility. Yeah. But I think it's better than fifty percent that they go undefeated in conference play because I'm with you. I don't think there's a game on the schedule that that they are um, at least before the year starts that they won't be favored in. Um, they've got the better defense than Cal does, and Cal brings back more. T- more production on offense than Oregon, but on paper, Oregon has the better player. So even though they're, they're going to be break, breaking in new guys, by that point in time, Oregon will have already have played five games, and you could argue that they, they should be in midseason form and, and should be able to get you know, get that game on their side for a road game. Um, I think if your first two real games of the year are early in the year against Washington state and Oregon state two teams who I think at the end of the year could be better, significantly better. Um, I think that's a win and then you really don't play any of your tough games outside of Arizona state until after your bye week And so you get plenty of time to kind of work out your kinks and get the rust off and, um, develop some rhythm and some chemistry with your team so that when you hit the tough stretch of Washington, Cal, USC, and then end of the year with Utah, you're playing at your best football. And so I, I, think, I think there's a chance that Oregon goes 10-0. I would probably argue they'll, they'll finish somewhere 9-1, and 1, but I think, I think they're going to be in the, in the Pac-12 championship game, and it's not going to surprise me if they're hosting it either. You know, my, first, my first reaction, they're going to repeat as Pac-12 champs.
0: And then after that, we get to see what happens because there's no real clear direction for what the postseason is going to look like outside of conferences. But uh, hopefully if Oregon, let's say they're 11-0 after December 19th, after they win the conference uh, title game at Autzen, um, let's hope that they're in some sort of college football playoff or at least being considered for, for a national championship, if that's the case. We just don't know what's going to happen. Um, one other thought here, Matt, before we sign off. Um, I looked at the schedule and I thought it really breaks into three different sections. And I wonder if you agree, but you got the first four. I don't want to say those are tune up games, but there's not a lot of challenges in there, but that kind of lets you kind of build your legs a little bit. You come off the bye week you have three really tough games, and that's where you learn about yourself. And then the three games at the end are kind of the mystery games. And that is a stretch there where I think Oregon should win all those games, but going to Tucson and Salt Lake, um, always up for grabs. And then of course, Stanford, historically, has been a really tough rivalry game for Oregon the last decade. So I, I think it's a fun schedule. I like the way it set up, sets up, and I think Oregon, like you said, has a great chance um, to, to either run the table but certainly to win the conference.
1: And, and look, if with no, no non-conference games in the picture, teams that want to make the playoff, they need to have marquee games, as many as possible. And so while you would have preferred to get the easier win against UCLA, in theory, on paper, Utah is going to be the better team this year, and that's going to be a, a, a bigger, I guess, blip on the radar than a than a, a win against Utah, especially against UCLA. Especially if you go to Utah end of the year and win that game, um, and just think of the teams in the and basically starting October thirty first that Oregon's going to play, and if they and they, if they beat these teams. Think of the reception it's going to carry. Washington is carries a big cachet within the, a national scope, and that will be viewed as a good win. California is being viewed as, you know, the biggest challenger to Oregon in the Pac-12 North. So if they go on the road and win that game in November, that's going to be a huge help. USC, obviously, you beat USC at home in November. That's going to be another jolt. Arizona's Arizona. That's not going to really move the needle much. Stanford, well, even though we personally – and, the, and probably people within the conference are down on them across the country, that will be viewed as a good win. And then Utah, like I said, you beat them on the road to end the year. That's another game where, where it's a good win. So, you know, six out of five, out of the next six, you know, five out of Oregon's last six games of the season are going to be ones in which if they walk out of that with a win, it's going to be most likely received nationally as a very positive game, which will only enhance I think, their, their college football playoff chances.
0: Absolutely, Matt. I'm with you on that.
1: All right. That's going to do it for us here on the Odds and Audible's podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for uh, continuing to check out the site, listen to the podcast, give us reviews. Highly, highly, highly helpful if you guys could give us a review on iTunes or or any other podcast platform that you listen to us on it's beneficial to us. It's a way you can help the show without even committing any, any, any money towards, you know, listening to the show. It's a free thing that helps us tremendously. So please give us a review on that show. If, if possible, very Scopel, myself, Matt preem you've been listening to the odds and audibles podcast.
0: Talk to you later folks.
1: Paramount plus and the national park foundation present a mountain of Zen. Are you still listening? Good.